Now, when I look back on my PhD so far, I can I can certainly confirm that I've never been in such a weird scenario in all my life. I was I was in the waiting room, holding several meter long cores. I mean, the looks that I was getting off people was was just hilarious. Like, um, and I, I think it's actually quite dark when I look back on that. When you consider what people must have been thinking, what the hell is that guy holding? So today we're going to talk about cold water coral habitats. So do you know anything about this? I thought corals were just in, in warm water. I know a bit about it. Um, I actually did my undergrad degree at UCC, uh, where Luke, who's our guest today, is studying. Um, and a professor there, Andy Wheeler, leads a lot of this research in cold water corals. So I was exposed to it a bit during my undergrad um, so I know a small bit about it, um, but I've never researched anything to do with it myself. So I'm really interested to hear a lot more about it from Luke today. This is Icragorama. The podcast about all things Irish geoscience. With Ben Couvin and Jess Franklin. Season 2, Episode 8. Today we are joined by Luke O'Reilly, PhD student at UCC. Today we are joined by Luke O'Reilly from University College Cork. Hi Luke. Hi Ben. Hi Jess. How's it going guys? Hi. We're fine. Well, I speak for myself. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine too, thanks. <laughs> Do you think after this whole thing will clear up that people are going to be talking with kind of a bit of a, a, bit of a lag? You're going to be waiting for people to actually answer questions. That's a really good point, you know. Maybe we'll be... Um more patient in how we speak to people. We'll actually wait for the response rather than try and get our own two cents in every five minutes. Oh yeah, so. I hope so. Well, it's, it's really great to be here. Thanks for the invite, guys. So tell us, you're the first student I'm interviewing who is from UCC. So how is it to study in Cork in general? Well, to be honest, Ben, studying in Cork is a bit like kind of studying on holidays. You're, you're kind of blessed with good weather um 365 days a year and what what's really great about about studying in UCC seriously now is that our department is it's it's quite small I, I imagine compared to the likes of UCD and Trinity but that's by no means a bad thing I I have a lot of crossover every day with, with my zoologist friends and I think that this crossover between the departments is is quite prevalent in Cork um, even to a point that we have we have a PhD student who's looking at, at doing a postdoc with us um, in the next few months. And she's coming from a background of, of plant science. And I think these kind of relationships wouldn't blossom um, if it weren't for the, the, uh, the Petri dish, which is University College Cork. We've kind of built our own um, marine geology research group over the past, past three years. And this was kind of spearheaded by, uh, by Dr. Aaron Lim and Professor Andy Wheeler. They, they identified that there was, there was enough of a gap to have a research group dedicated solely to marine geology. And we look at resources, but we also have a strong environmental um, background and focus. Yeah, I've never been in Cork. Um, actually, I've been in Cork, but I've never been in the university. Is that a nice campus to study in? Beautiful, beautiful. I mean, 
you, you go over to the, to the main campus there where, where, where a lot of activity is central to and the architecture is quite, quite gorgeous, to be honest. Now, our own university, our own, our own little um, cohort, we're actually located across the River Lee, about a 10 minute walk off the main campus. And we have our own little building there, which we share with, uh, with psychologists. So it's a nice little combination there with your, your scientists and your psychologists. Um, but I think this is, again, probably a good thing. Um, our, our school is based over there. We're called the, the, the School of Bees. That's Biological Earth Environmental Sciences. Um, but that's a good thing, kind of being, being separated from, from the main campus. It's, it's a lot calmer. Um, Jess can probably testify to this too. Is, is the it's very up. hard just to listen to people ask questions. How's Cork and what's the campus like and not be on the receiving end of the question, to be honest. As, as a Cork woman, um, it's very hard not to pipe in and tell you how great Cork is every five minutes. You've taken a big risk having two Cork people on at the same time, Ben. I just warn you there to begin <laughs> with. Um, but I definitely echo everything Luke said. Um, the department where the department is based is just gorgeous. It's nestled in among a lot of trees behind a kind of a, a lovely sandstone cliff next to the river. Um, and it's quite secluded, which is like Luke said, it's so nice because it's really calm. Um, when I was doing my undergrad in Cork, um, we only moved down to that location in my final year. So kind of first to third year we were on the main campus. Um, it's, it's a beautiful campus. It's along the river. Um, you'll have to come and visit sometime. Oh, definitely. So, Luke, you did your um, undergrad in UCC a couple of years after I left. Um, so how did you end up picking the degree? What led you on to be at UCC? Well, I tell you what, Jess, I am the youngest of, of three. I've got two older sisters. And my oldest, I've always kind of followed in her footsteps, even though I might have annoyed her growing up but um like we would have listened to the same music or at least i would have copied what she was listening to um and fast forward a few years she studied zoology at ucc okay um, at the time there's there's five years between myself and naomi and i remember when i was doing my my leaving cert um hadn't really much focus at all um my head was up in the sky because you know you're you're only a kid at that age Mm-hmm. and I was kind of asking her for a bit of guidance I kind of told her what I was into into the outdoors and she said look coming from from my background zoology I think you know I've, I've got a few geology friends and maybe that's something you should look into and that was really it that was really what led me into it so so you knew you wanted to study geology um when you applied for the course oh Jess like I mean I kind of took I kind of took the mickey of it the, the CAO for the laugh I put medicine down and for my first one um, did you I done very very bad in my leaving cert um yeah a bit like I said I was misguided didn't really have much of a graph for it um and I had gotten into bees um due to the fact that somebody had actually dropped out of the course I shouldn't have been in bees in the first place so oh, I hadn't wow. had enough points at the time to actually even study at university so mm. I was I was at the time I remember I was working in retail and I was like okay this is my life now and I had gotten a call from uh, someone in admin saying that someone had dropped out and that they'd love to have me along so it's it's wow. really that I'm here and so, now you're doing a PhD that's right that's, that's right. pretty incredible did you did you not like school did you not like studying 
Well, I, I, I went to school in an all-Irish school. So all the way through when, when I was four years old, up to 18, I was, I was in all-Irish. So in these schools, English is forbidden to talk. Um, mm-hmm. you're, you're kind of punished. You have, to, you have to write out the rules if you're caught talking Irish. Um, and I was a bit of a messer as well. And I think that combination, um, the way my brain works, I'm not very good at, at writing and not very good at spelling. Um, so I was kind of, I was kind of marked from the outset by the teachers as this guy's, this guy's a bit of a pain in the ass. So I think um, that kind of had an influence me uh, when I was about 12 or 13. I kind of kind of didn't feel the love from them. So I kind of, I didn't reciprocate too much. And, and I wanted to completely avoid science. And when I was handing in my choices for, for, to do them on, in the leaving search, I, had, I just forgot to hand in the page. That's how much I just didn't, I didn't really care about it. And oh. quite to this, the, the principal came up and he said, okay, Luke, you now have to do physics, you have to do biology, and you, you got to do chemistry. So I, he kind of just he completely threw me under the bus. Um, so I was, I was, I was screwed for, from the offset. There was no way I was going to do well in my leaving cert, no matter what. So... <laughs> Wow. That could go into a whole other rant on the education system in Ireland. Um, but I, I think that's extremely inspiring that even though you had no role model and you had no one guiding you and you actively had teachers and mentors telling you that you couldn't do any good and yet here you are doing a PhD in science. I think that's pretty incredible and just goes to show that you can never undersell yourself and you can aim for anything. That's really incredible. Tell us a bit more about your project, actually. So um, you're working with cold water coral habitats. Is that right? You absolutely nailed it, Ben. Now, before I get into it, I want to ask you a question. When I mention the word coral, tell me, Ben, and tell me, Jess, what image springs to mind? I suppose the, the cliche is that you think of beautiful turquoise waters and lots of colorful fish and beautiful expansive reefs that's kind of the cliched idea when you think of corals isn't it i thought about white dead corals to be honest but yeah when we think of corals we we do think about the shallow water reefs um and you don't tend to think about deep sea cold water corals and these are the ones that myself and my team look at, um, we look at deep sea cold water corals. Now, these don't have the ability to feed on sunlight because they live outside of the photic zone. So off the top of my head, I think the photic zone accounts for depths which are greater than 150 meters. And because they can't feed on sunlight, they are absent of something called symbiodinium. And symbiodinium is a fancy word for dinoflagellates which are responsible for photosynthesis and these can be found in the endoderm of tropical corals but are deep water corals they don't have these so they're classed as something called azuzentilate now this terminology is important just to just to get out of the way so some of the tropical corals that that you've been thinking of there jess and um, even the the kind of bleached ones you were thinking about ben um they are actually called zooxanthellate. So you've azooxanthellate and zooxanthellate. Azooxanthellate, zooxanthellate. Do you get that? Got it. Right. Yeah. So the deep sea species, they need to get their food from somewhere else, either from particles which are falling from suspension or from 
prevailing currents, bringing them lovely food, which I suppose is kind of similar to our situation for the past few months. We're getting food delivered to us by people on bicycles. Um, <laughs> move. So it's, it's the same thing nearly. And Ben and, and Jess, you're, you're probably going to say next, ah, but Luke, why should we care about deep sea azuzentilate cold water corals? And I'm going to tell you why. Cold water corals have been fittingly termed ecological habitat engineers. So what this means is that in the right conditions, what I like to call the Goldilocks zone, they can form huge underwater seamounts, which can be hundreds of meters in height. Now, typically they're found at water depths of 200 to 1000 meters. Uh, this is in the Atlantic Ocean, but again, this is below the photic zone. So just think dark. The ones that I study are located in a submarine canyon called the Porcupine Bank Canyon, which is about 350 kilometers off the west coast of Ireland. Now, cold water corals are considered to be vulnerable marine ecosystems, and they contribute to uh, nutrient and carbon cycling, and thus they could potentially provide very important ecosystem services to us human beings. They act as nurseries for marine life, and in turn, they appear to be the cause of heterogeneous benthic biological hotspots in really deep parts of our oceans. All that means is very important for biodiversity, these cold water corals. Now, the way these corals are growing is very, very slow. So as a result of this, they are very vulnerable to major climactic shifts. So marine biologists and marine ecologists, they've been spending years and years and years looking at the looking at the spatial occurrence of the most common cold water coral species. And, and these include the ones you find off the west coast of Ireland. And they're doing this with like uh, modelled environmental conditions. And I suppose at the time of me talking to you guys, uh, the coral community kind of agrees on three environmental requirements pretty much um, for, for good coral growth. Um, and this can, be, this can be observed globally, in fairness. So the first of these environmental requirements would be a prevailing hydrodynamic regime. So the currents can't be quick, but not too weak, because corals, they need just the right amount of sediment input to help them stabilize their structure. Number two, you generally need a hard substrate for corals to settle on. Now, studies have showed um, that without a hard ground for coral larvae to attach to, it usually ends up as bad news. Now, these hard substrates can be as little as a dropstone of a few tens of centimeters in size, to which if you look off the Irish coastline, there are a plenty, thanks to something called ice rafted debris. So that's the second thing. Now, the third thing that is typically agreed on is temperature. Now, as the name suggests, these are cold water corals after all, and they generally prefer temperatures between 14 and 12 degrees. So this is just a very rough summary of their distribution and, uh, and where you can typically uh, predict that they'll occur. So we know that warm water corals are affected by global warming. So what about cold water corals? Are they also affected? And um, can you trace past environmental changes with them, for example? Sure. Um, so I suppose I'm just gonna I'm gonna try and explain that as best I can. There, so Ben. Um, so there's a phrase you, you've you've probably you've probably heard of, and you hear this phrase when you listen to people 
which know about animals living in particular habitats. And this phrase is called ecological tipping point. Now, when the ecological tipping points threshold is surpassed um, in a system, this can really mess things up for our coral friends. Uh, you probably know of something called ocean acidification. Now, ocean acidification in layman's terms is when the chemistry of the ocean becomes more acidic. The ocean is constantly absorbing carbon dioxide. Essentially, this traps in more heat more and more. So with this, our oceans become warmer and the ability of carbon dioxide absorption, it gets kind of freaky, right? And animals which are carbon-based, like our coral friends off the Irish coast, well, we all know how that story ends. So no more fish nurseries, you know, no more marine biodiversity. If you're coming from a business background and these things don't bother you too much, well, no more fishing, which means less jobs, less money, et cetera, et cetera. So what, what do you look at specifically with the corals? And given that they're hundreds of kilometers off the coast and hundreds of kilometers under the sea, um, how do you actually study them? So you could, you could spend weeks at a time going offshore and actually trying to capture a collapse of a reef system happening before your eyes is very hard. So, of course, we have to look through time and we got to figure out then um, we have to use this to, to model what will happen in the future. Does that make sense? Yes. In essence, any sediment which, which passes by large coral reefs, some sediment um, becomes deposited in and around the coral architecture. And essentially this becomes trapped, right? So when you core through these marvelous coral reef structures to retrieve temporal information, you find that through geological time, corals respond rather interestingly with changes to their environment. Like sometimes, uh, say in a, in, a, in a three meter long core, some intervals are clearly loaded with corals. It's, it's quite evident that they're having a good time. And there are some intervals or periods in your core, um, and it's pretty much barren of coral growth. So generally speaking, this, this on-off sequence, and you're going to hear me use this, this term a lot, on-off sequence, that we're seeing in corals, it relates to glacial and interglacial cycles. Now, depending on where you are in the world, cold water corals either respond positively or negatively to glacial conditions. For instance, off Ireland, we see that, um, we see that coral was absent for tens of thousands of years during glacial conditions, but returned and resettled when we transitioned into the present interglacial period. Isn't that very interesting? Now, we travel down to Mauritania or Morocco, and we look at coral cores from the same time period. And it appears that cold water corals had the absolute crack during glacial conditions, but then went extinct during the current interglacial period. We're in. So it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a switch there. So that's interesting, right? So I just want to go off on a bit of a tangent, one of my many tangents of this conversation, on how incredible the team that we work with in the Marine Institute are, um, including the team who run the Holland 1 ROV, that's the remotely oper operating vehicle that they have. Now, in past studies of cold water corals, researchers have deployed pieces of equipment called vibrocores. Typically, they deploy them off the side of a, of a moving vessel. What the Marine Institute have done is they've built a vibrocoring unit which locks onto the front of the ROV, and this allows you to travel down to the seafloor and core exactly where you want, meaning that you extract 
highly accurate and representative data sets for your core. It's incredible stuff, really. So for anyone interested in seeing one of these coring missions in action, you can look me up on YouTube, okay? Just type in ROV vibro coring um, through cold water coral mounds, something like that, and you'll see one of my, my videos pop up. And that'll give you a good sense of what I'm talking about. So this method is, is a very novel approach in assessing these coral reef structures. Um, when we get back to base, um, I mean, when I started my PhD, when we collected these cores, we, we then struck a deal with Cork University Hospital to use their CT scanner um, to try and identify these on-off sequences I mentioned previously. Now, when I look back on my PhD so far, I can, I can certainly confirm that I've never been in such a weird scenario in all my life. I was, I was in the waiting room holding several meter long cores. I mean, the looks that I was getting off people was, was just hilarious. Like, um, and I, I think it's actually quite dark when I look back on that, when you consider what people must have been thinking, what the hell is that guy holding? But luckily at the start of, of the, scanning, the scanning sessions, um, my supervisors, Dr. Aaron Lynn and Professor Andy Wheeler, were, were, were with me at the time, which, which helped me, um, which helped actually take the edge off the onlookers. But after a few sessions, I was going in solo. I was in the scanning rooms with the medical experts while they were doing their thing. Um, and after I got this, this medical CT imagery, I was lucky enough to travel to Morham at the University of Bremen. And you do this, you, you get all this amazing information without having to split open your, your, your data that you're after spending hundreds of thousands of euro on to actually gather. And this approach is but maybe four, uh, five years old. So it's really great to be, to be one, of the, one of the first few to applying to deep sea coral studies. So you can study this, the sediment and you can, you can look at a lot of different parameters to do with the sediment, to be honest. Like for instance, you can look at, uh, you can look at grain size and you can hypothesize current speed through geological time. And you can say, you can kind of see what kind of impact did this have on our coral friends when you look at the, when you, when you line up that data set to your CT data set. Um, so I'm using these cores through different habitats to figure out what the heck happened over the past tens of thousands of years. And this work is just scratching the surface, really. Wow, that was a very elaborate expl explanation. Like I say, Ben, you know, you get me started at all and you know you can't shut me up he is a cork man ben you <laughs> asked for it i love um the crossover between medical science and marine geology whoever would have thought that would be a match made in heaven i think that's a really cool example of how different types of sciences can come together um to be applied in such a kind of novel way it's really really cool um you've done such a broad and sweep of different types of work and different types of um, research. Do you have a preference what you prefer, like life at sea or in the lab? I would, I would say over the past, past three years now, life, life at sea is, is what suits me best. I'm a Why? Sea right? Why do you think that is? Um, I, like, I like how tough it can be. I like how challenging it, it can be. I like getting to know people um, a lot more intimately um, then you get to know maybe onshore um, and when you consider the cost of, of everything how much money has gone into actually acquiring ship time it's it's incredible really um, and you know it's not every day that you can say that you're you're working you know 350 kilometers off the off the coast of Ireland. It's really cool it's really exciting I think all of us have been 
out in a research vessel at some stage. And um, I think every, we all know that it's incredibly exciting and you do feel very lucky to be there. Um, I think it's interesting. So you love the work at sea. You said you like it because you get to know people better. But some people could think life at sea can be quite isolating. You're cut off from your friends and family for um, sometimes weeks at a time. Do you think there's any um, crossover with how you're living now in lockdown? 100% yes. I mean, when, when, this, when this thing started first, um, I, was, I was talking to, to a, f- a friend of mine over in Brazil who's also a marine geoscientist and, and we, were draw- we were drawing those, uh, those parallels as well. Yeah, you're, you're pretty much on the money. That's the feeling you get, that, that isolation feeling that people are going through right now. Um, that's the feeling you get. But, but in, in truth, we only go off for, for max, you know, two, three weeks at a time. There are some people which, which stay off for, for, for six months, you know, people that actually work on these ships. So, I mean, that will give you a flavour of, of their lifestyle. Do you think that helped you cope any better with quarantine and living in isolation? No, 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 not at all. <laughs> no, there's, there's, no, there's no correlation there. The, the first few weeks of this, of this whole thing were shocking, to be honest. Mm. I, was, I was freaked off my game about the whole thing. Um, mm. I think I spent the first 10 days in my room. And looking back now, it's only it's only what I can describe as uh, heightened anxiety. Yeah. Uh, but then I kind of started to get out of my own way. I started getting back into the swing of things, and I think it actually gave me the kick up the hole I needed to, to start putting a bit of flesh on on a few papers. We've all seen that you're organizing weekly webinars since the start of of quarantine. So, um, what made you want to start this project, and um, what challenges did you encounter? Well. I think we go back to the first 10 days there that I mentioned. Um, I was completely in my head about this whole thing and I was really kind of deprived of, of some kind of human interaction. Now, I get on very well with my family, very well, but I kind of had a bit of a reflection on my situation thinking that, geez, I'm actually not too bad considering, you know, um, and I was thinking maybe about just getting some kind of platform together week by week, um, but a platform that you can you can learn a bit of a bit of information that shouldn't be too too hardcore on the science. A bit more, a bit more of a, of a kind of a get together with a bit of a crack as well. Um, and I suppose I suppose that was it really. So it was kind of um, my love for podcasts as well. I, I listen to podcasts every day, and that comes with working at a microscope, uh, picking forums. You know, you're you're you don't want to be just just looking at looking down the lens all day without listening to anything. So. I think it was a bit of a perfect storm in that regard. Um, I'm surprised that it didn't happen any sooner, actually. Um, with regards to technical difficulties, oh man, I tell you what. Um, I mean, organising something like this and relying on technology can be uh, heart, um, heart attack inducing. You know, you're kind of sending out emails and you're kind of hoping that nothing crashes. In the first, the first two weeks there were an absolute nightmare. Um, but as the weeks are going by, I, I think I'm panicking a little less. You know, the, uh, the hour towards the build up to the, to the webinars, I'm panicking a little less. They are live. So, you know, anything can happen. And, you know, if you want to tune in every week just to see me mess up, you know, come along. <laughs> that might happen too. Well, so far I've seen two of them and uh, it didn't seem like it went out of end. On the contrary. Thanks, Ben. I think they've been fantastic. I've really enjoyed them as well. Um, I'm just wondering, do you have any plans to continue them after quarantine or lockdown has lifted? Now that we're starting to lift out of it, I suppose. Just because um, for me, I'm living in Galway at the moment and 
I otherwise wouldn't have been able to attend any of the um, seminars, obviously. And I'm sure a lot of people are the same. You said you've gotten great numbers for them. So do you have any plans to continue in some sort of way? Yeah, I think, uh, I think you nailed it there, Jess. Um, that's what the people want. I've been, I've been sending out surveys and people are asking me to keep this thing going um, even after, after these uncertain times. So, I mean, it's, I pretty much have an infinite amount of resources in, in the sense that, okay, I'm focusing on marine geology now, but maybe from the, the few, few sections that, that I was talking about a while ago, it's clear that there's a lot of crossover with marine geology, with marine biology as well. So, you know, yeah, in short, to answer your question, Jess, I think I'll keep them going. Um, and the amount of time I put them in, in week by week, it's, it's becoming reduced. So at the start, I was putting in hours and hours and hours of effort. And now that's just becoming a bit more refined. I can kind of just click a few buttons, make a few blog posts, um, bang it out on Twitter, happy days, turn up on the day, you know? So yeah, let's keep it going. Pretty nice. And um, so how can people attend to these talks? Oh, well, I'm after creating a, a registry page um, on eventbrite.ie. Um, so if you just type in cold water coral webinars into Google, it's probably going to be the first or second thing that comes up. Otherwise, check me out on Twitter. Um, my, uh, my name is underscore, the actual symbol now, not the word, underscore Luke O'Reilly. And all the details there will be in my bio. Even if you type in hashtag UCC Marine Geo, you're going to find something to, to do with registration there. After you register, I'll, I'll flake you into the uh, Microsoft Teams page and you got access to all our content from there on out. All our webinars are recorded. So even if you, even if you miss everything to date, they're all up for you there. Um, and you'll notice as the weeks are going by as well, they're getting a little bit more um, friendly to the general public. So it's going in a direction which I like to see. Um, I kind of have a vision that you can throw these things on when you're going to sleep at night and you can drift off. That's the kind of uh, vibe that I want, to, I want to go for anyway. Well, we'll uh, we'll put a link on our Acrogramma Twitter page for people to uh, be able to uh, find you as well. Awesome. Are you going to any digital conference soon? <laughs> I'm planning to go to a conference by the end of the year when conferences are happening again. We have a Bees Research Day, um, and I think there's there's ten or eleven digital talks at that. So you record your your lecture in PowerPoint and you, you upload it. Uh, and I was I kind of eyeballing uh, Paleontological uh, Association one. I think they're they're running one in maybe a month's time. So I think you mentioned your social media before, but uh, if you want to reiterate, you can follow me there on Twitter underscore Luke O'Reilly, um, and you'll see my beautiful face pop up on your screens. Nice. Any last words before we wrap it up for good? Hasta la vista. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Luke, for this great interview. And uh, we wish you all the luck with the rest of your uh, lab work, uh, hopefully not at home for much longer. That's the end of Ikragorama. So um, bye. Bye. bye.